I want to invite your attention to the book of Jonah, and we'll read beginning in verse 1 of the third chapter of the book of Jonah for our text this morning. Beginning there in verse 1, the Bible says, And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto, the, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them, for word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the degree, decree of the king, and of his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, lest them not feed nor drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in thy, their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? And God saw their works that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. Correctly read and barring any mistakes on my part, reads the third chapter of the book of Jonah. This is the second of the minor prophets. We've studied the book of Obadiah, the minor prophet Obadiah. And we understand that when we say minor prophets, we're not talking about things that were written in God's word that were less important than other things. We're just talking about the length of the writings. And so of the literary prophets, we have major and minor prophets under that category. This is one of the minor prophets. It's only four chapters long. And for a little while this morning, I want to talk to you about Jonah. The book of Jonah gives us an unusual insight into the character of a man. His name and place of birth identify him as the prophet of Israel in the days of Jeroboam II, 2 Kings chapter 14 and verses 23 through 25. There can be no doubt that Jonah played an important role in the exploits of this king who restored the borders of Israel and brought great prosperity to the nation. The home of Jonah is said to have been a village located about four miles northeast from what was later the city of Nazareth in Galilee. He is pictured in the book that bears his name as a narrow-minded, fiercely zealous patriot. He is jealous for God and desirous of seeing the enemies of his people destroyed. But the expression of divine love for a heathen nation and of God's great desire to spare it it is magnified as it is shown in contrast to the spirit of this prophet of old. The book of Jonah also differs from all other books of the prophets because it's written primarily from a historical point of view, where it gives the history of a man, the history of a nation, and lastly and certainly not least, it tells us a great deal about God. 
There are three basic interpretations of the book that are taken by various schools of writers, and they are the mythical, the allegorical, and the historical interpretation. The mythical interpretation assumes that the story is just that, that it is a fable or a myth that grew up around some incident in the history of Israel. The allegorical interpretation that some would assume or contend that this is, it assumes that the story is an allegory of Israel's captivity, repentance, and restoration to its land. But finally, the historical interpretation. That interpretation accepts the fact that there actually was a prophet named Jonah, that he actually went and lived and went to a place called Nineveh and preached to the people of that city. And because of the repentance that these people made based on the sermon that they heard from this prophet, it accepts as historical fact they repented and God spared the nation. It also accepts as historical fact that before he went to Nineveh, Jonah tried to do something that no man could ever do. He tried to flee from the very presence of the great God of heaven. And when he did, that God created or manifested a great storm at sea, that this prophet of old was cast into the sea and was swallowed by a great fish that God had prepared and was later vomited out three days and three nights later out upon that beach. And as Linwood Smith used to say, and brother, that man hit the beach running. These are things that are accepted as historical fact. Well, let me just notice this with you rather briefly. Jesus one time placed his sanction on this story as historical Bible fact by comparing it to his own death, his own burial, and his own resurrection, Matthew chapter 12, and also Luke the 11th chapter. You remember that Jesus said these very words. He said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Therefore, the historical interpretation is by far the only one that is worthy of acceptance to all of us today who accept the fact that Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God and that in the great scheme of redemption, God sent His Son to bear the sins of the world. That on Golgotha's brow so long ago, he hung on Calvary's cross for about six hours. They took his body down from the cross. He was buried, and on the third day, he rose again from the dead. Yes, we all believe that with all of our heart. And that's the reason that we have hope as we live this life is because of what Jesus has done. Jesus compared what he was going to do before he did it to what happened to the prophet Jonah. So we accept it as Bible historical fact. Let me just notice one more thing along this line before we move into our story. A book may be historically accurate and not be inspired. You can go to, to a library and pull out any kind of history book that's recording any history on any subject during any period of time. And it can be absolutely, even though it's coming by or being written by the recollection of the human being and not certainly coming from God, you can have line by line, you can have a history book or a history story that contains facts that are 100% accurate. You can find a history book that'll do that and yet not be inspired 
Here's my point, though. You cannot take a book like the Bible that's inspired and have it be historically inaccurate. It is not possible. All the things that are written in God's word are historically accurate because it's all divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. Well, now our story. Surely we know the story. We've known it probably since we were little children. But notice this as it begins. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah and said, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. But instead of doing just exactly what God or the word of the Lord had instructed Jonah to do, he says, I've got a better solution. I'm going to go to the further ends or I'm going to go in the opposite direction than what the word of the Lord is instructing me to do. I'm going to go to Tarshish. And the Bible says that he goes down to Joppa, the chief seaport of the Holy Land, and finds a vessel sailing westward. And he goes on board and he pays his fare. And the Bible says that he goes down, as the King James Version says in chapter 1, he goes down into the sides of the ship, or essence, he goes down into the very hold of the ship and he begins to sleep. Very interesting though, he is able to go and fall asleep without his conscience bothering him because somehow, some way, he has it set in his mind that he can flee from the very presence of God. In other words, if God said go to Nineveh and cry out against that city and preach the sermon that I'm telling you to preach, that if he goes in the opposite direction, if he goes on the ship, he can somehow, some way, hide from the eyes of the Lord deep down into the sides of the ship. So his conscience also slept. You remember the story of Jesus one time in the New Testament scriptures? You remember one time when there was a tempestuous sea and Jesus was on board but he was sound asleep? Do you remember that those that were there came to Jesus and they said, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Remember that song we used to sing, Peace Be Still? Carest thou not that we perish? How canst thou lie asleep? And you remember that they came to Jesus and said that in utter desperation and panic. But Jesus said, he said, Peace be still, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. I like what one scholar said in likening these two men. Jesus Christ was sound asleep without anything bothering him. And Jonah on this ship was sound asleep without anything bothering him as well. They're both in the very midst of this great storm and tempestuous sea that's beating against the ship. But here's the difference. As one man said, as they both slept peacefully, Jesus was confident, not because he felt himself far from God's hand, but because he was hidden in God's hand. And that's the difference. And as one said one time, when you run from God, there's going to be a storm. Well, we know the story, and the Bible says that the sea ran high, and the sailors or the mariners began to pray to their own idolatrous God. They're in utter desperation. They think they're going to lose their very lives. And so they're going one to the other and imploring or encouraging them to pray to their own God and see if this calamity be overpassed. And all of a sudden they get together and they persuaded each other that there's got to be a culprit on board. We've done all that we can. We've lightened the load of the ship and yet it's not going to help. We've done all these things and so on and so forth. 
We've prayed to our, our own gods, our own idolatrous gods, but to no avail. There must be a culprit on the ship. And the Bible says that they cast lots, and the lots fell upon Jonah. You remember when they came down and found him in the sides of the ship asleep? That the one fellow says, what is it, thou sleeper? What's going on? Who are you? Where would you come from? And who is your God? But notice what Jonah says in reply to that. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. And Jonah admits to them, to those, that he was trying to flee from the very presence of the Lord. And at that very moment, he was the only, as one scholar said, the only heathen on the ship. They asked Jonah, what could we possibly do that we're going to be spared from this great destruction or this, uh, we're not going to be cast into this sea? And Jonah says, take me up and cast me overboard and the sea would be made calm unto you again. Well, we know the story that Jonah was cast into the sea and God prepares a great fish and that great fish swallows Jonah whole. And the Bible says that he was three days and three nights in the, in the belly of that great fish. And you know what he was doing when he got there? Very interesting. You know, if we think about the story of Jonah, I would imagine if God didn't have his attention, he's got it now. And the Bible says that Jonah begins to pray. And I like so very much his prayer. Sometime in your time, read the second chapter of the book of Jonah. Time will not allow us to do that today. But if you read that, it reads more like a psalm or a prayer of praise and thanksgiving. Now, I'll tell you this. There was no man that was in any, any lower depths than Jonah was when he was in the belly of this whale or this great fish. And what does he do? He gives a prayer of praise and thanksgiving. Why is that important? I thought you might understand this this way. I'll liken it in this fashion. Have you ever had something in your life that seems at the time that it's so dark? Have you ever been in utter desperation and you bow before the great God of heaven? And what do you pray for? You pray for relief. You pray that God could stay the problem that is before you. That somehow, some way, he will remove or relieve what is before you. Sometimes we get so desperate, we just beg and beg and beg and beg and beg. You know what Jonah did when he was at his lowest depths? He praised God. He praised him. And he offered a prayer of thanksgiving. And as he concludes his prayer, he says this, I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. And with these words, the Bible says that the Lord spake to the great fish. I don't know what he said. The Bible doesn't say. Very interesting, though. The Bible says he spake to the great fish, and the great fish vomited out Jonah on the ground. And I'll tell you something now. This fellow's ready to preach, isn't he? Oh, he's ready to go. He is ready to go and do just exactly what God had instructed him to do. And like I said, 
I'm sure he hit the beach running. He has a message to tell. He has a charge to keep, and he is ready to do it full force with every fiber of his being. But let me just notice this. There are two great wonders in this story. One is a miracle or an act of God that God did physically by actually creating a great fish that would swallow Jonah whole, have Jonah in the belly of that great fish for three days and three nights. He doesn't eat the man. He doesn't digest the man. He just has him inside there in the belly of that great fish. And then God speaks to this great fish, another physical wonder, who vomits out Jonah out on dry ground. That's the first thing. But let's not forget the second great wonder of this story. A Hebrew stranger goes to Nineveh, which is considered a great city. This is not some little small town. No, this is a great city. My good friend Dwayne here and I the other night were talking about how sometimes in various countries when people are really poor, how it's said of some in the Philippines and in Africa and various places, how they have nothing but the Lord. So they're willing to listen. They're so poor, they have nothing in this world. And the gospel has free course, and souls are saved, and people are interested in spiritual things. But sometimes we that live in a country of plenty, sometimes we uh, are so busy with the distractions that are around us that it doesn't have the effect that it could have or does have in other places. We're not talking about one of these poor places like that. No, we're talking about a great city. And this Hebrew preacher hits the ground and preaches a sermon to them. That's a, that's a wonder. And notice also, if not only incredible, it is even unthinkable. I understand that Nineveh was the London of Jonah's day, having been built upon the spoils of war. It was a place also that was very populous, having estimated not fewer than 120,000 inhabitants. It had walls surrounding her of 100 feet high, and included within it were parks and gardens, possibly even pasture land. You can picture in the very last verse of the book of Jonah in chapter 4, when God has a discussion with Jonah, and he talks about all of those that are there. He talks about the six score thousand inhabitants that don't know their right hand from their left and all the much cattle. Chances are this was a place that had beautiful pasture land. This was a place that was not wanting for anything. And that's the point. When you notice the power of God's message. The third chapter says that this was a city of three days journey. I understand that this has nothing to do with the diameter or the circumference of the city, which some do say was about 60 miles, but it referred to the fact that it would take three days to visit and see all of its principal uh, points of interest. For example, Beirut one time was said to be a city of three days, referring to its great size. It takes three days to get to see all of the principal places of interest. Well, Jonah enters Nineveh, which was a day's journey, and he begins to preach. And by a stern, cryptic message of repentance, universal panic was once produced. You know, we can almost picture in our mind's eye Jonah's countenance and his expression. His expression of desperation as he hit those streets and preached that sermon. 
getting ready to preach perhaps like a man that was raised from the dead. His face doubtless shone like Moses so long ago. His eye doubtless flashed. His brow was knit and his lips trembled as he shouted those famous words. Here it is. I give you the eight English words. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. You know what's interesting about that? I understand that those eight words in the English language, in the Hebrew language, was only five words. That's a five-word sermon. That's it. That's it. How many times do we preach our hearts out? For an hour, days, weeks, and so on. And it seems like we see no visible results. This man preaches a five Hebrew word sermon, and the results were electric. He was, as one man said, surcharged with the thunderings and lightnings of divine oratory. As we picture in our mind's eye, one prefers to think of Jonah as uttering these words as a stern preacher with a boldness that is worthy of a Nathan, or the boldness that is worthy of the great apostle Paul so long ago, whose burning truths within his preaching withered hostile hearts, or of one whose voice would be crying from the wilderness, John the Baptist, who repeated his prophetic call, repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jonah spoke those few words and words of doom at that, but the effect was electric. And the Bible says that the Ninevites repented, and as a consequence, God also repented of what he was going to do unto them, and he did it not. Now, I'll tell you something. For somebody that preaches God's word, you would think that he'd be ecstatic. You would think that when he saw those results that he would be absolutely beside himself. You would think that he would bow before God and praise God for the increase and so on and so forth, but he does not. You know what he does? He's angry. And God asks him, do you do well to be angry? And he says, yes, I do well. And he goes someplace and he sits down and he begins to pout by himself. And God produces a vine that grows up over the night. And when he awakens, he sees the vine and the Bible says... That he is elated. He's happy about what God has produced. But the very next night the Bible says that God also produces a worm. And the worm comes and, and smoked that plant. And it withered and died. And now the prophet is pouting again. And as we near the end of our story, what happens? What we find is, is God says to him, what a great lesson, what a great point. You have more sorrow for a plant that you did absolutely nothing to enhance. You did nothing to grow. You did nothing to help it along at all. It was produced one day, and the next day it withered and was gone. And you have a greater soft spot in your heart for that vine or that plant than all of those inhabitants of Nineveh who don't know their right hand from their left. And incidentally, that means this. They don't know right from wrong. And the much cat. And that's the point that God made back to this prophet. In summary, the entire story can be broken down into four categories. And they're broken down into four chapters. Number one, running away from God. Number two, running to God. Number three, running with God. And number four, running ahead of God. That was the story of Jonah. I want to notice just a few things 
Oh, there are many preaching points that we can pull from this story. There's certainly many things we could say. I want to leave you with three brief lessons that we can glean today from this story. Number one, get this. Regardless of how hard you try, regardless of all of your best intentions or efforts, you will never run from God. You will never be able to run from the all-seeing eye of the great God of heaven. And the reason for that is, and the reason we cannot escape the eyes of the Lord, is because God is everywhere. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 28, the Bible says, For in him we live and move and have our being. As certain poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Hear the words of the psalmist David who said this, about understanding with regards to what he would do in his life, he understood where God was and what God sees. Beginning in verse 7 in the 139th Psalm. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall be thy hand to lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, Surely darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made perfect, made in secret, and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in my book, and in thy book, all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. Oh, the psalmist David understood that he could never depart from the eyes of the Lord. The Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13, he said, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Jeremiah 23 and 24 says, Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord? I'll tell you something. The greatest compliment, get this, the greatest compliment, that a Christian could ever receive in this world is when someone looks at your life and makes the statement that you live what you say. That is the greatest compliment that you will ever be given is that those people live it. What a beautiful thing that is. But sometimes folks don't live it. It's very sadly that some folks don't. I'll just tell you this. What you are for real in your heart is what you are when you're not around God's people. It's what you are in your busy day. 
It's the decisions that you make. It's the things that you say. It's the language you choose. It's the lifestyle that you have. That's what God sees when you're not around his people. And you can never escape the all-seeing eyes of God, no matter what we do. The Bible says, be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. But secondly, you know what else we learn? We learn that it's dangerous to have a sectarian spirit. We find Jonah manifesting a sectarian spirit. Perhaps, I don't know, that there was an underlying racism in his heart. This might explain why he fled to Tarsus in the beginning. He possessed the same spirit as the elder brother of the prodigal son. You know, we talk about that story and we always mention the younger son. We mention the younger son and rightfully so we should. Because it shows the, the, the loving father in forgiveness when one re would repent. Absolutely. A beautiful story. But sometimes we forget the elder son. You know, he was a prodigal too. The word prodigal means wasteful. And the one that left, he was a prodigal. But the one that stayed was one as well. You would think that after his younger brother had come back, and owned it and accepted that all he had done in wasting his substance with riotous living and all of the horrible things that he had done, he, he, a Hebrew boy in the midst of pigs rises up and says, I'm going to go to my father and I'm going to say, don't make me like your son. Make me a hired servant that's good enough for me. I'm not worthy to be called thy son because of the choices that I have made and because of the sin that I have been living in. So he purposes, I'm going to rise up and I'm going to speak to my father. When he does, he stands before his father and he says, I have sinned against heaven and against thee and I am no more worthy to be called thy son. But you remember what the father does? He stops him in mid-sentence and says, no, put a ring on his hand, put a robe on him, kill the fatted calf. Let's eat and drink and be merry for this my son was dead. And is alive, he was lost and is found. You would think that his older brother would be elated, but his older brother was out there in the field. You remember that? And all of a sudden, he hears all of this goings on. He hears the celebration. He hears the music. And he wonders, what's going on down there? When he finds out it's because his brother had come back, he's angry and refuses to go into the celebration, manifesting a sectarian Spirit, When the father entreated him, this was his response. He said, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, and yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf, and he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we would make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead, and is alive again, and was lost, and is found. You know, there was another time when folks had this attitude, and it was to Jesus. You remember that? In Matthew, the ninth chapter, verses 10 through 13, when they had this spirit toward Jesus, when Jesus was eating with publicans and sinners. And the Bible says, beginning in verse 10, 
And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that behold need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but to the sinner to repentance. Never ever let it be said to of any of God's people that we would refuse to embrace our brother or our sister who repents and comes back. That's a blessing. You know why that's a blessing? You know why we rejoice? We rejoice in using the verbiage of what the Bible just said because he was lost and is now found. You remember 1 Corinthians 5? Oh, what a sinful thing was going on in Corinth at that time. The Apostle Paul had to address it. He said, it's so bad, it's not even mentioned among the Gentiles. He repented, though, didn't he? And by the second letter, he says, you embrace him, you receive him, and you love him, so he's not overcome with overmuch sorrow. Oh, let's never have a sectarian spirit when someone repents and comes to the Lord. But thirdly and finally, we learn that God is willing to relent where there is repentance. We learn that from such preaching of condemnation, it's also, it's often conditional. In Jeremiah chapter 18, beginning in verse 7, it says, In what instance I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. And at what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it do evil in my sight, that it obey not my voice, then I will repent of the good wherewith I said I would benefit them. And notice this too. You know what else we learn? We learn sometimes that the least likely candidate is the one that becomes converted. You ever seen that? Sure we have. Let's never prejudge an audience, folks. Let's never prejudge a heart. We don't know what's going on in the heart. So everyone is treated the same. We take the glorious seed of the gospel and we spread it to those that are in the world. It's their responsibility to have a good and honest heart. It's not my responsibility to judge whether they have one. And God, he said that if I'll do my part, if you'll do your part with the seed of the gospel and the sinner has the good heart, God will give the increase. Remember this. There's been some folks that have made some horrible decisions in their life and lived as almost the devil's disciple but came to a point in their life when they said, I no longer am going to live like this anymore. I am going to become a Christian. That happens. Hear what Paul said. Here's an example of just that. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Hear the language of Paul, beginning in verse 9. He says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, 
nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Paul is saying all of these that have taken these paths are those of the unrighteous, and they shall not see the kingdom of God. But notice what he says next. And such were some of you. You know who he's writing to? He's writing to Christians. He said, and such were some of you. But you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. In conclusion this morning, this is a great lesson for so many of us. Actually, it's a great lesson for all of us. It's a good lesson for preachers, I'll tell you that. And that's to never prejudge an audience and don't ever avoid the responsibility that God has placed upon the preacher. It's of value to every single Christian as to never have a selfish, narrow-minded, sectarian spirit and to be concerned for the wicked wherever they are. And finally, it's of value to sinners that God loves you, but listen, destruction is coming. Destruction is coming. We have to be in obedience to the word of God, the gospel, in order to be saved. But God loves the sinner. He loves the alien sinner who has never been washed in the blood of the Lamb, who has never heard the word of God, believed in Jesus for whom he is, repented of their sins, and decided, I no longer want to live like that. Those that have not confessed Jesus Christ as the Son of God and gone down into the waters of baptism to rise and walk in newness of life. God loves those people. But destruction is coming. He also loves those that have been enlightened by the gospel and have decided to go back and turn back and go back to the ways of the world. He loves you, but destruction is coming. But the best part of all, if we'll repent, if we'll change, if we'll take that stand, if we'll obey the gospel and be baptized for the remission of our sins, we are embraced. And he will relent the destruction that would be coming to us. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.